Parenting is often lived in the extremes. It's either great joy or chaotic overwhelm. In one moment, you're nailing it, and the next, you're losing your cool. I want to help you find your way to the messy middle, to a place of balance. You see, balance is a verb, not a state of being. It is a thing you do, not a thing you are. It is an action, a process, a series of micro-corrections that you make each and every day to keep yourself feeling centered. We are never truly balanced. We are engaged in the process of balancing. Hello, I'm Dr. Laura Froyan, and this is the Balanced Parent Podcast, where overwhelmed, stressed out, and disconnected parents go to find tools, mindset shifts, and practices to help them stop yelling at the people they love and start connecting on a deeper level, all delivered with heaping doses of grace and compassion. Join me in conversations that will help you get clear on your goals and values and start showing up in your parenting, your relationships, your life with open-hearted authenticity and balance. Let's go. This is Dr. Laura Froyan with the Balanced Parent Podcast, and on this week's episode, we're going to be talking about speech development and how to go about getting your children support, how to know if they need support, and what that can look like. And to help me with this conversation, I'm bringing in a speech-language pathologist and therapist who's going to be helping us figure some of this out for ourselves. So Leanne Jared is the owner of an online speech therapy company, and she's going to help us figure this all out. So Leanne, thanks for coming on the show. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you do? Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be on and talk about my favorite topic, which is (laughs) speech and language development. Um, So I am a speech language pathologist by career, and I'm one of the rare ones that didn't find it from personal connection. A lot of SLPs, as we're called, know someone that needed speech or they themselves needed speech. I thought I originally wanted to do accent and dialect coaching for actors, which is very, very niche (laughs) as a career. But as soon as I went to undergrad and learned about the very wide field of speech language pathology, it's actually a fairly misunderstood field in, in just the breadth that it really covers. I learned about what it means to kind of help an individual either grow or rehabilitate the very, very beautiful human gift of communication. And that really spoke to me more than anything. So I took off from there to get my master's and have practiced in my career predominantly with pediatrics. I've worked a little bit in schools, a little bit in outpatient clinics where kind of all your clients come to you. And I've worked in home health where you go to the houses and daycares of the kiddos that you're working with. Moving into telepractice and co-founding our online practice was really about addressing some of the challenges and access that I noted in my practice. And so we're really passionate about increasing access for families to services who need it because speech and language really does set up so many other aspects of a child's life and growth and development from day one, even pre-day one, even before they're out in this earth. (laughs) So tell me a little bit about that. Why is early intervention so important when it comes to speech? Yeah, I, it's one of my soapboxes, honestly. (laughs) We know from so much research at this point that the earlier we intervene on a delay or disorder, not just speech or language, but 
in particular, yeah, any, anything, any illness, any disorder, the sooner we intervene, the stronger and better our outcomes are going to be. When we look at early intervention, which is typically considered, you know, birth to three years old, that's the point in a child's life where they are forming new neurons at a faster rate than they ever will again in their life. So when we kind of seize that opportunity to start early, we're interceding at the point where we have the opportunity to help them form the right neural connections and and really grow those skills that again, we're laying the foundation that sets them up for future success. So early intervention is key and I'll die on that hill. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I so agree with you, you know, in so many different areas, but I think, you know, the speech piece of it can be really tricky for parents because parents don't always know what's typical, what should be concerning, what are the things to look out for that would signal that you might need some support, that your child might need an evaluation. Can you talk to us a little bit about that, about what parents should be kind of on the lookout for? What's in that range of normal versus needing support? Yeah, absolutely. And the range of normal, that's a key phrase there because it is always a range. I think there are the big milestones that a lot of parents do know. So I think many know to expect that first word around 12 months. Some kids might be a little earlier. Some kids might be a little closer to 15 months. And that would be considered the range of average for that first word to come out, whether it's mama or data or maybe juice or ball or blanket or something else. Across between, you know, ages one to two, we're looking at a pretty good language burst there. By the time we come up on two years of age, we'd hope for a kiddo to have anywhere from 20 to 50 words that they're able to use independently, meaning they're not just repeating it after another person has said it, but they are coming up and using that word independently. And then around that two-year mark is where we'd also look for them to start combining those words to make short phrases. So where we'd see simple phrases, hi, doggy, bye, mama, night, night, daddy, little easy phrases, but they're taking two words that they know and using them together to make a short phrase. And then two to three is where we'll expect a really quite large burst of language. And again, that's because they're forming these connections at such a rapid pace. They're just meant to be sponging up everything. Mm -hmm. And so if parents are finding that we're missing those couple big milestones and not going from 25 or 50 words to couple hundred words by age three, it's a good idea to approach the pediatrician, approach a speech language pathologist and begin investigating how, how we might get them some support to grow both their speech and language. Okay. And so we're talking about a little bit about vocabulary, both expressive and receptive vocabulary. So what a good child can understand being communicated to them and then what they can express. Um, Can we talk for a second too about the pronunciation and enunciation, that piece of it? Um, When to know like when is this kind of age appropriate slurs or mistakes and, and when is it something to be concerned about? Yeah. And you bring up a good point because speech and language are two different kind of umbrellas. You, you're spot on. My background in my PhD was in how parents and families support children in early literacy and language development. So I do have a, just a smidge of a background. I worked with a lot of SLPs in my research. Yeah. I'm probably preaching to the choir. So speech 
is in those early years in particular, it's going to be a little squishier, a little (laughs) mushier. You know, around age two, we would expect to understand maybe 50% of a kiddo's independent utterances. By three, that should jump up to about 75%. As a familiar listener, so sometimes unfamiliar listeners might understand slightly less than mom and dad and sibling do, but we should by age three have about 75 to maybe 90% clarity on any given utterance. Not every word is meant to be perfect. We have sounds that are later developing. So the late eight sounds like our our S, our R, L, C, H, those um, a little bit more complex sounds. They take some time to kind of come in and solidify. If you're on a Google hunt to kind of find out some real charts on that, If you search kind of speech sound development, it should pull up a number of really good resources out there just to look at each sound. If you're kind of worried about it, if your kiddos four and they're still using W for R, that's age appropriate. And you can kind of get your hands on some good information. I would say as far as internet searches go, there is some good information out there on that. Yeah. (laughs) When my youngest daughter spoke very early, like was speaking in multiple word sentences by one. It was very early, Um, but she didn't fully bring in S until, I mean, probably she was still dropping her S's on S consonant combinations like spider and spooky. Mm -hmm. So she would, if she was talking about spooky spiders, she would say it was a pooky piter. (laughs) It was very sweet. And the, the internet was very reassuring on that. That would come in, the S would come in when it was ready to. Yeah, yeah. there are definitely some things to watch out for in terms of speech development. There are things called phonological processes, which are kind of like little patterns that kids' speech will take on as they're trying to achieve adult-like utterances and speech. And it's sort of a way that the brain goes about simplifying what is maybe more phonetic complexity and things like that. If you notice kind of little patterns like that cropping up in the kiddo's speech, a really common one, for instance, is one called velar fronting, which is where they take the sounds that should happen in the back of their throat, like a K or a G, K, G, and they put it to the front, T and D. So instead of saying duck, they might say duck. That pattern, for that's just one example where that's age appropriate until about three. And then we should expect to see that kind of extinguish itself out as they continue growing and practicing this speech. So there are some things to kind of keep an eye on and check out some resources. Like you said, you went in search of it and you were reassured by that. I tend to find that parents instincts though are usually pretty good I usually kind of tell my parents that they're they should trust their gut on things like that that. if there's a parent that has a concern I am all for kind of bringing it up with a specialist or just pushing on it even with the pediatricians sometimes pediatricians they do fantastic work every once in a while I think it seems like they can kind of play the old-fashioned wait and see card. And as I already kind of said on my little soapbox, that's kind of valuable time that we're letting go by if we're not 
intervening as early as possible. So I encourage parents to trust their gut and kind of push on their resources in the form of like their healthcare providers, pediatrician, lots of speech language pathologists, you know, will conduct screenings, screenings at daycares, screenings at schools. So there are definitely ways to kind of find out for sure, you know, get a path down for sure on whether or not the kiddo needs support. I think that that is so important. I think we disregard parents' intuition way too much in our culture and society. And I think it's, I really appreciate you saying that, that we can trust our guts and we are allowed to advocate for our kiddos. That if a, you know, somebody brushes us off and we continue to have a concern that it's okay to push or go around and find another resource. Absolutely. Yeah. I am a hundred percent for that. Okay. Good. We're on the same page. (laughs) So one thing that I know that is super frustrating for kids and parents while children are in this younger ages as language is developing, and I'm imagining, you know, not having been had a a child with a speech or language delay or disorder, but I'm imagining that as that progresses, that there are lots of frustrations can come up, both for the child and the parent. Can you speak to a little bit of kind of why that might be, why it's so frustrating for both parents and kiddos, and then what we can do about that to, to ease things a little bit, and, you know, obviously, in addition to getting the support that you need? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think I have kind of a twofold answer. The first part of it comes from the fact that a little bit of frustration on the kiddos part is actually a good thing and a healthy thing because I'll point to a phrase that I really love. There's no growth and comfort and no comfort and growth. So sometimes for kiddos to really be forming that little light bulb moment of, oh, I could do this. And in our case, it's, oh, I could try to use that word that I heard mom say the, just a second ago when I was reaching for my ball. Maybe if I say ball, she'll give me the ball. (laughs) So sometimes that little bit of frustration, a speech language pathologist will actually utilize it quite a lot. We teeter on kind of the edge as our, as our growth moment, our learning moment for you know, that little light bulb. And that's, I'll tie it back to wait time as well. Parents can kind of utilize wait time. Mm. I think we hear a lot about, and I wholeheartedly agree that, you know, a really good way to support speech and language development is of course, modeling speech and language, narrating what you're doing at home, modeling words as kids show an interest in an object or an interest in an action. We can model that language for them. Along that line, we might talk a whole lot, right? And sometimes it helps to build in a little bit of wait time to see what your child might do or say in response. Sometimes if we open that window, we might be preventing some frustration as opposed to maybe constantly peppering with questions or just not kind of giving them the space to respond. The other side of that response that I'll give is if frustration is occurring for a kiddo on a daily and regular basis with their speech and language development and their ability to kind of communicate in order to achieve a goal, either to get something that they want or to get attention that they want. That's usually a pretty good indicator that some support would be needed because cognitively they know what they want and they are likely understanding a lot of what's going on around them. But if they're having trouble expressing that same kind of sentiment back, they might be in need of some support. So there's definitely a tipping point of frustration where a little tiny bit is healthy, 
a lot of daily frustration could indicate a need for some help. Yeah, I think that that's really a very balanced perspective too. So I think like there's normal frustrations with a child as they're learning a language and they don't maybe like actually know the word for something and they're pointing and asking for something and they're frustrated that their parent isn't understanding them. There's times when my six-year-old will want something or want to talk about something, but it's a complex thing and she doesn't actually know the word for it yet, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. or she's trying to describe a hairstyle that she wants me <laughs> to put her hair in. You know, it's, I mean, those frustrations are different than consistently not being able to be understood, you know, mm -hmm. which is so frustrating. I can imagine for a child. I think that it's really important that parents really have a lot of compassion both mm -hmm. for themselves that it's really hard as a parent so we're parents we're supposed to know how to meet our kids needs and if they're having difficulty communicating then we can't effectively meet their needs and that is a hard position for a parent to be in we have to yeah. be so kind to ourselves and then also so compassionate to kids, just being able to imagine what it might be like to have all of these great cognitive skills, all these wants and desires, things you want to express and to not be able to be heard and understood by the people that matter most. That's devastating for a kiddo. Yeah, I couldn't love how you said that more. Just that, yeah, absolutely. Parents, that urge is deep in there to make sure that your kiddo has everything that they need or want and gosh, the feeling of not being able to identify it or get them that I think causes a lot of panic in that moment. And so definitely giving yourself grace and knowing that sometimes it might not come down to the answer. Some every once in a while, hopefully not too much, but every once in a while, the answer might have to be, can you show me? Can you point it out to me? Can you take me there? If they don't yet have that piece of language, and then again, that's our opportunity for growth. If we can find another modality to solve the problem and then kind of grow upon that. So, you know, they might take us over to the fridge, have us open it and point out that juice. Now we can take the opportunity to try to model juice, have them imitate juice, ask for more juice, you know, to grow upon those little moments, but grace is needed for sure. I love those last little tips though that you were giving. What are some of the things that parents can be doing to support kind of optimal speech and language development with their kiddos? Yeah. So I think like we said before, modeling that speech and language. So engaging with your child is kind of the number one thing that we can do to help them learn and grow because they learn through imitation of the people around them. And really parents and caregivers are the number one people that kiddos want to learn from. So engaging in a little bit of play and don't forget that play is learning. Play is the work of children, as they say. So it's never a waste of time to play with your kid. It's time well spent. Modeling and narrating. So it feels a little silly. SLPs will admit that sometimes you might feel silly if you go about your day and kind of narrate what you're doing with your child, but that's all language enrichment opportunities for them to see what you're doing and have that language alongside it for you to even narrate what they're doing so they can start to form those connections. So if you guys are playing bubbles together, you could pick maybe five words that you'll focus on early for those early language learners, five words for the next 10 minutes while you're doing bubbles, bubbles, blow, pop, mm, jump, finger, maybe get a mix in there, verbs, 
objects and just see how many times you can kind of model that for them, expose them to that word so they can start not only forming a, a connection, but a really strong connection. And then as, as kids grow into more kind of sentences and, and longer kind of utterances, again, the modeling comes in there for them. So expanding upon what they say, if they say bubbles, you might model blow bubbles or pop the bubbles. I pop the bubbles, you pop the bubbles. So keep kind of growing upon what they say to show them how to put those words together. But really, I think number, if I was going to boil it down to the most simple point, I would say engage and play. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's important too, to note that all of those things are happening within the context of a loving relationship and connection is also one of the ways that sets our brain up for learning and growth. And so doing that in the context of this loving relationship where parents are so, and caregivers are so incredibly powerful in that way. So Mm -hmm. beautiful. Yeah. And playtime. And we think a lot about daily routines as well. So those opportunities Mm -hmm. where it's, again, it's going to happen every day, every day, you're going to get up from bed and get dressed and have breakfast. And those repeated exposures and repeated opportunities really help solidify things for kids. And those are also moments of great connection and relationship building because we're helping them. They're learning from us. So daily routines are good opportunities as well. Yeah. This is, so lots of the, our listeners practice rye parenting. It's a form of respectful caregiving. And I mean, one of the main principles is capitalizing on those caregiving moments, really involving the child, um, having it be a very relational connecting experience with a lot of dialogue back and forth between child and caregiver, even before the child is verbal. So from the very beginning, so with my little ones, it was, if we're narrating a a diaper change, the child is involved. And it's amazing how quickly they start getting used to that rhythm, used to the routine. And it's beautiful. But yes, that very much aligns with the the parenting that we talk about here. Yeah, definitely. And that sounds like a fantastic approach. Yeah, it's, it's so lovely and fun to, I don't know, to view those daily routines, those things that are going to happen over and over and over as each individual one is a moment for connection. And mm-hmm. what's beautiful about it is it frees kids up to, you know, they it fills their cup during those moments. And so then they go and play independently too as they yeah. get older, which is beautiful too. Yeah. I'd be remiss if I didn't say sometimes those routines don't go to plan, right? <laughs> but even then, <laughs> opportunities for connection, even as your child is crawling away from the chain. Exactly. Looking over 20 times, like exactly times of, of figuring out how to do something together, you know, figuring out how to work with resistance. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, we've all been in there when there's a dirty diaper that needs to be changed and the kid keeps crawling away it's frustrating but also still a good opportunity even in the midst of you know frustration. yes for sure <laughs> okay so I have a couple more questions for you I feel like I'm kind of just like drilling you with questions I hope no. that's okay no I love it I'm ready I hope I'm giving good answers you certainly are <laughs> so helpful um so I know that you know I've had you know OTs and PTs on in the past and I've neglected to ask a question that I get a lot after the episode goes out. So I'm going to ask you on this okay. one. So we probably need some support. We probably mm-hmm. need to go seek out an evaluation. Parents really want to know what that looks like. So what's going to happen when I seek out support or seek out an intervention? What is the evaluation period going to look like? And what will we actually do? What will be asked of me? We asked my child, well, how does that look? The other question too 
is how do I go about finding a provider that is aligned with what I believe to be true for, for children? Any thoughts on those? Yeah, yeah. Okay, maybe I'll start with kind of finding the providers. There are a lot of different wonderful things, you know, particularly in certain countries like here in the United States, early intervention services at the state level are a part of the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act that also mandates that a free and appropriate public education be provided to every child in this country. So those referrals would most commonly be made uh, for early intervention through a pediatrician. So again, broaching that topic with the pediatrician, asking for their referrals for a specialist or a provider. You know, a lot of times that is going to be a, a state provided service for the evaluation. Um, we could talk more about kind of who qualifies for then the treatment and, and what that looks like. But right now we'll, we'll keep it in the evaluation lane. If a child is school age, and really that kind of starts as early as three, because we do also have early education programs here for the three to five-year-olds that kind of are maybe headed towards preschool. And then throughout a child's schooling, speech and language services are ones that have an academic impact potentially. And so they can be evaluated at school, at public schools as well. But I'll, I'll back up for a second, too. And there's also independent research that a family can kind of take on. And there are lots of private practice providers, lots of good clinics that families can always contact themselves to see about the referral process and accessing an evaluation. If they have insurance, Medicaid, or if it's, it's an out-of-pocket pathway, you know, there's different financial approaches there. But so you know, a couple different pathways to find the referral. If it's through, you know, healthcare in the form of pediatrician, if it's through kind of education-based through like the school, or if it's just kind of independent search for a private practitioner. Once you get- Can I ask a yeah, question? Yeah. What is birth to three? Birth to three is a usually part of the Department of Education, right? And so where does that fit in and how do people go about accessing those services? Yeah. So if we have a referral from the pediatrician, which yeah, that is supportive. And then if not, families should still be able to also contact the state agencies yeah. directly so, as well. Like I know in Wisconsin, it's that's administrated through the Department of Education. You would go to your county's school board and they're, usually their website would have information about that. And then there's an mm -hmm. application to fill out and a process mm -hmm. for getting started. Yeah. I just wanted to mention that for folks who maybe aren't as well resourced that there's at the very least we can get you to a library to a computer that has an internet and yes absolutely that's a fantastic point once you're headed into an evaluation particularly we're talking about the younger age but really in the case with all evaluations the provider will absolutely want to spend a good amount of time talking with parents because parents and caregivers who interact with children on a daily regular basis Mm -hmm. When we come in for an evaluation, whether it's in-home services or a telepractice service or school-based, there is going to be direct interaction with the evaluator and the child looking across the specific area, so speech and language development, but also getting a little bit of insight into just general overall developmental milestones, gross motor, fine motor, cognitive development. Professionals are trained to kind of know a good amount about those pockets in order to make appropriate referrals if they feel that that's necessary on top of the evaluation that they're doing. So always a parent caregiver interview process. 
always some direct interaction with the child to assess their current speech and language abilities in, in terms of the speech and language evaluation or fine motor and sensory development for occupational therapists, gross motor development for physical therapists, et cetera. You asked a question there about finding a provider that's kind of the right fit for kind of your approach. And that's a really interesting question to which I would say sometimes it might be trial and error and that's okay. As a speech language pathologist myself, I can say sometimes I'm wounded if a family doesn't feel like I'm the best fit for them, but I understand that everyone has different thoughts. And so I guess I would say for parents and caregivers that again, an empowerment piece might exist in the fact that it's okay to inquire about a different provider, seek out maybe another one. If, if you don't feel like you're gelling on some level, um, caveat to that being that things sometimes take time. So I definitely have worked with a kiddo where the first few months felt a little bumpy. <laughs> and then, for, and then from there we overcome it. We get through the tough parts. We form a really great relationship and it's just a matter of, uh, new things being new and sometimes new things taking time to kind of settle in for a parent or a kiddo. Yeah. So it sounds like you're saying kind of make sure you give it a good try, but also don't be afraid to advocate for yourself and recognizing that goodness of fit is really important. Yeah. You, you summarized it beautifully. That's exactly <laughs> the point that I was making. Mine was long, more long-winded. Oh, Yours you was beautiful beautifully day. summarized. <laughs> My job is to summarize. Okay, good. Well, that's really helpful. And so then what does the speech language pathologist actually do then? Like during sessions, is there homework? Like what can a parent expect if they're going to be getting support? Yeah. So during the sessions, I can say that our approach at Expressible in particular, and really what research points us to in the field is parent and caregiver involvement. So there is, Yay, that's yeah, so yeah, <laughs> yes. And there is a little bit of, again, still kind of old school thought, like some families might think of speech language therapy as kind of you drop the kid off with the therapist and pick them back up in 30 minutes. And that over time, the therapist alone will kind of fix the problem. The therapist will do really great work, but it's not our best use of time. Our best use of time is to increase the exposure to those skills by helping parents and caregivers be involved in the process. Because again, they're the ones who are speaking to the kiddo mm -hmm. every single day. So again, in my viewpoint, I think parents should look for providers who are passionate about that. Not every provider might take that approach. And some things are complex, right? So I think this conversation has focused a little bit around speech and language delays and disorders and things like that. Some kiddos have really complex medical needs where parents absolutely still very much should be involved, but the therapist might facilitate a lot more of that direct interaction. For young kids, it's usually very play-based therapy. And again, that's as it should be. As they get a little bit older, speech language therapists will help with speech sound development, language development. We work on voice. We work on feeding and swallowing. We work on stuttering and fluency. There's a whole gamut of skills that we are equipped to assess and treat. And 100%, there should be home practice. You mentioned homework. Absolutely. Parents should look for, and if you find your provider, not kind of pr 
giving that, again, advocate and ask for it and kind of be eager to have that resource and practice activities so that you can just be an active participant in helping your child learn and grow. I love that. That's so important. Okay. So you mentioned stuttering real quick and a question I see in my free Facebook group all the time and in other Facebook groups that I admin for people ask about stuttering it's mm-hmm. particularly around three I get a lot I see lots of questions my three-year-old has suddenly started stuttering while they're talking and I I'm curious if there are anything you know myths or misunderstandings that come around stuttering especially with our young ones anything you want to share on stuttering Yeah, for sure. Stuttering is one of those ones where when we're maybe doing an intake for a potential patient or client, we we have some upfront questions to get a little bit of a picture, almost in a screening type way. I would encourage families, again, if you have a concern, to trust your gut and reach out about it to the pediatrician, to a provider. Again, at, you know, at our practice, we do free consultations with everyone so we can help answer questions with a speech language pathologist and help then inform the decision-making process on if moving forward with an evaluation and then maybe subsequently treatment is warranted. But with stuttering, there are a couple signs to look out for. So between the ages of three and five, it's pretty common for kids to go through a brief period of developmental stuttering. And in 75% of those instances, the stuttering would resolve without intervention. That does leave a percentage though, a little bit in limbo, which again is why I encourage parents to reach out that 25%, they could potentially be a kiddo who will need intervention. And as we said at the top of the call, the sooner we intervene, the better. That would also be kind of uh, informed by how long it's going on for. So we typically would look if it's happening for a period of six months or more with consistency, that it would be a good idea to reach out again through the pediatrician or to a a speech language pathologist. If there's a family history of stuttering, that is a a sign that we kind of look for and would encourage an evaluation sooner. And If the kiddo is showing any kind of awareness of the stuttering, if they kind of comment on it, if they say something like, I just can't get my words out, if they start kind of abandoning what they're trying to say out of frustration, if you start to see kind of physical signs of a struggle as they're trying to get that speech out, that's definitely assigned to kind of get them into an evaluation and have a a licensed professional kind of go through the whole evaluation process. Those are some kind of added layers that we would ask about, we would kind of be looking for, because it is a little bit of a sifting situation on which kiddos might just be going through a period of developmental stuttering, which is completely typical. It's a, a, you know, could be a part of typical development and that percentage who might kind of fall into the basket of needing support. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, I really, and I I like those kind of qualifiers, the things to look out for. When we're faced with a kiddo who's doing a little bit of the stuttering, maybe is this developmental stuttering, maybe is Mm -hmm. not, what should parents do in the midst of it when it's happening? Yeah, great question. We should, again, model what we hope to see so we can model 
our speech at a nice, easy rate, keep it really relaxed. The other thing we mentioned earlier about wait time comes into play and not peppering with questions. Sometimes, you know, kiddo gets in the car with us from daycare or preschool. We might say, oh, what'd you do? What'd you do today? Who did you play with? What did you see? Where did you go? What did you look at? <laughs> that sometimes can start to build up a lot of pressure in a kiddo's little system. And we might not think of it. And for some kiddos, they might thrive off of that moment. But if a child is having any difficulty with you know, stuttering or what we would call disfluencies in that case, if it's not a fluency disorder or, you know, full-blown stutter that we might kind of back off from that and leave more yes or no questions in some cases can help them come to their response and participate with a little bit more ease, leave things kind of open-ended and provide them with wait time when we're speaking with them, we want to let them know that they have our attention and then they don't have to fight for that attention. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that might come down to needing to do a little bit of household conversation management, sibling management. We might do a little bit of turn-taking practice at the dinner table to make sure everyone has a chance to speak. We might sometimes need to rain check them. You know, I like to point out that Obviously, some tasks need to get done from a parent's perspective, right? Sometimes you you need to get this done, you need to get out the door, you need to make dinner. And if your child approaches is kind of going through a disfluency, having trouble getting their words out, and you want to be there for them, we can get on their level for a moment, let them know that you're eager to listen, you have this task to complete, and then you'd love to hear about it as soon as that task is complete. And the important piece there is to try to make try to make sure you do follow up on that rain check. Yeah, exactly. Like we, we don't want it to necessarily be a dismissal, but we want it to be a moment where we can kind of help them out of that tough struggle and then come back at an opportunity where they have your undivided attention to talk and spend time together. Oh, I love that. I feel like you're really hitting on something there that sometimes we are so rushed. And the kids can feel that, right? And so really slowing down and getting on their level and letting them know that there's time, that you're listening, there's no rush, I think can be really helpful. And if there is a rush, then helping them wait and delay until there isn't that rush. I think that's that's really hard too for little ones who don't have as much memory, as much working memory, and then they forget. And that's really frustrating too. I can see it sometimes in kids. They have so much to say, such big thoughts to communicate. And they can't, their brain is going faster than their mouths can go. And it's so hard. It's tough. It's like they're just bursting at the seams. I think the last, and I think I'd be remiss to not say this too. um, It's a common myth when it comes to, you know, developmental stuttering or disfluencies to tell kiddos to slow down. That's an instinct that we have. Oh, yeah. say, oh, slow down for yourself. Like, if oh, you yes, yourself slow down, but not 100%. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. And you're spot on. Like we said, we should model that kind of slow, easy speech. But sometimes parents have an instinct to kind of say, well, slow down, slow down, slow down. Hang on. Stop, 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 stop. Start again. Slow down. That again is one of those things that also can kind of have reverse effect from what we might think. It might kind of be piling a little bit of pressure onto them. So instead, if we can 
turn that inward and slow ourselves down and then model that as an outward model that might end up being more helpful for them in that moment. Yeah. So rather than overtly telling them to slow down, slowing down ourselves, projecting ease and calm and time and space. Yes. Beautiful. Yes. Mm -hmm. And probably don't tell them to just spit it out because I feel like that's what I heard growing up (laughs) was just spit it out, (laughs) you know? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. It's not the most helpful thing we could say, no. (laughs) Okay. Well, is there anything else that we should know? I feel like we got this like beautiful crash course in speech and language development. I so appreciate it. Is there anything else you wanted to share and make sure parents know? I think the highlights would be what we've touched upon a few times that parents should trust their gut. We mentioned like some research and Googling is troublesome and you can fall into like a rabbit hole of things on the internet. There are a lot of really great resources out there, even just from, I guess I'll name drop the American Speech, Language, and Hearing Association. The acronym for that is ASHA, so A-S-H-A. They have, you know, information about developmental milestones for speech and language. I guess I'll plug our website. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so much great information available. Yeah, so expressible.io. We have blogs, we have videos on our YouTube channel, and you know, just helpful information and resources. Again, if you're trusting your gut and would like some information, we conduct, like I mentioned, free consultation phone calls to talk through that with a speech language pathologist. Yeah. And then trust your gut. Um, Feel empowered to advocate for your kiddos. Time well spent is playing and engaging when it comes to this growth with speech and language. And that support is out there. You know, it's if your child does need help and 8% of children in the United States do demonstrate a need for speech and language support. So it's not atypical. Help is out there. We do have a lot of good resources. And I I would say in some cases, and what we think about a lot at Expressible is that access can be tough for some families. You you touched upon that initial research point might mean kind of getting getting to a library, getting online and trying to find something, but that taking action if we can is going to be more helpful than not. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate all this information, Leanne. Thank you so much for your time and expertise. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. I I love talking about this stuff. (laughs) Well, we loved hearing about it from you. I hope that this was helpful. If it was and you need more support, please reach out to Leanne. She's got a great team ready to support you. Okay. So thanks for listening today. Um, remember to subscribe to the podcast and if it was helpful, leave me a review that really helps others find the podcast and join us in this really important work of um, creating a parenthood that we don't have to escape from and creating a childhood for our kids that they don't have to recover from. And if you're listening, grab a screenshot and tag me on Instagram so that I can give you a shout out. Um, and definitely go follow me on Instagram. I'm at Laura Froyan PhD. Um, that's where you can get a behind the scenes look at what balanced conscious parenting looks like in action with my family. And plus I share a lot of other really great resources there too. All right. That's it for me today. I hope that you keep taking really good care of your kids and your family and each other, and most importantly of yourself. And just remember, balance is a verb and you're already doing it. You've got this.